Flinders University in Adelaide. A very lively place, as we keep hearing, not least about research on your brain. But would you be miffed to find that Dr Yi Lianchu is using worms to find out better how your brain works? Now, if you had a brain in front of you, say my brain, what were you actually looking for? So I want to know how people learn and remember stuff. Precisely, I want to know what the chemical components of a memory are. When we think of memory, we think of it as like some sort of intangible thing that it's like, what did I eat for breakfast this morning? Oh yeah, toast. But in our brains, it's stored as a chemical code and I want to know what that code is. Isn't it more a matter of the circuit? You know, for instance, I get the back of my head somehow the memory of when I was 10 speaking German, and I'm not thinking of that phrase at all. For instance, es tut mir leid, I'm I'm sorry. I didn't think of that until 2022, and somehow it was stalled back there. Mm -hmm. And I just assume it was some sort of circuit, and okay, the circuit runs by chemical interaction. But which do you think comes first? It definitely requires both. When we think about the way the brain works, you know, when we think of the human brain, it's like this giant mushy pink thing, but it's made out of lots and lots of brain cells that contact each other in various ways. So they can contact each other physically through which they kind of shuttle little chemicals towards each other, and those are called synapses. Or they can also release what I like to think of as wireless signals where they spray a bunch of seeds at the other chem- at the other neurons and the other brain cells be like, thank you for this love message. So I feel like that is the circuit that is probably important for learning and for remembering stuff, but it starts with a chemical signal released from a particular brain cell, and they use that to talk to other brain cells. And it could be one brain cell, one neighbor, or it could be many, many brain cells. And so I want to know all of that. I want to know the chemical code. I want to know what the entire circuit is. And I want to know if we then have the answers to these questions, can we improve memory? Can we recover memory in people who have lost memories? Is it that simple? Well, one of the problems with growing up, which is why I use that example, is that you unlearn things and you get rid of various circuits, otherwise you get too crowded. Mm. So there's a kind of culling process. How do you know that that phrase I just remember... How did that get preserved? What the brain selected that phrase (laughs) and all the other things disappeared. So something is in control of that. Oh, definitely. And I think it's very interesting how memories that are long term, like over days or even years, are stored differently from memories which you just gained this morning. Like, it's sort of amazing when you talk to people and you ask them, what did you have for dinner last night? It was not that long ago. And some of them take a while to kind of remember that. But then if you say, you studied German in year seven, how do you say, I'm sorry, in German? Then they're like, straight away, es tut mir leid, right? So that's really interesting in some ways. And we know that people, for example, with dementia, sometimes they can't remember things that literally just happened. But if you talk to them about a family dinner at a Chinese restaurant 30 years ago, they've got that. So I think that's something also really cool about memory that we have to figure out, right? Like, what's the difference between the long and the short term? But Because they're clearly stored differently. And the example you provided, yeah, there are probably lots of things from your school days you don't remember. 
but that's one thing you definitely do. So what makes that memory so deeply encoded in your brain? I think these are all questions we would love to answer. Is it possible, and I've heard distinguished scientists say so a little while ago, that the long-term memory, much of it, may be put as well as proteins in the nucleus in the cell, and it's only the short-term stuff that is really resonating still as circuits. That is absolutely possible, and I think we have to keep an open mind about how all of these things happen. And it's very possible that in the human brain, which has many brain cells, many compartments in the brain, we think the hippocampus is like one of the major parts of the human brain, stores a lot of memories, but the hippocampus itself is made out of thousands of brain cells. So if you kind of think about it as a giant filing cabinet of memories, it's possible that every filing cabinet happens to take care of the files in a slightly different way. So perhaps some of them have proteins in the nucleus and some of them have neurons connecting to each other in interesting ways with specific chemicals. So that's what I want to study, but in a much smaller animal than the human. And of course, the hippocampus is quite small, really. It's only seahorse size. Yeah, definitely. So I guess in the grand scheme of our entire human body, a hippocampus is not huge. But that does not belie how important it is, of course, and how many cells it contains and how well connected they are to each other and to other parts of the brain. Now, when you go to your laboratory to look at your model animal, as they say, which is a nematode worm with 300 brain cells, it doesn't even have a brain. <laughs> How do you know that what it's doing in there matches what's doing with us? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think when I try to explain this to people, people always think of learning and remembering as kind of like learning to play at the piano or learning a new language. And I will be the first to say that worms cannot do those things. However, we can test if they've learned something. Worms have a really, really keen sense of taste and smell. They can differentiate between thousands of individual smells and tastes just in their 300 brain cells. So what we can do is make them associate those smells or tastes with the presence of food and to make them like those tastes more or those smells more. And we can then test their preference for certain things, but that preference is learnt. So they don't know it at the beginning. The naive worms are like, whatever. But then the learnt worms are like, I love the smell because it reminds me of food. And we can do those experiments in worms and we can show that they can learn and they remember for a pretty long time for a worm life. So we presume it's in circuits or who knows. But do your nematode worms communicate in any way with each other or how would you tell? Do they jostle each other and sort of nod or something? Yeah, so they do communicate with each other in a way. They are, I wouldn't say as social as like bees or ants or termites or that sort of thing, but they do release pheromones which are really important for things like mating. And also to, I think it's a way of judging the size of the population. So the worms don't precisely have eyes, so they can't look around and be like, oh yes, my family of thousands is here. But they can sense those pheromones and the concentration of those pheromones tells them how many other worms they are. And I believe this impacts on how many eggs, for example, they lay so that there's a kind of population control starvation type thing which comes about because there's a communication chemicals of course and uh, how are you following that up now yes yeah, so i'm looking at communication more within a single worm's brain 
And what I want to know is, as you brought up earlier, what the circuits are for the memory, how the brain cells in the worm connect with each other in a way that is required for that memory to be stored in the worm. The great thing about having an animal with only 300 brain cells is we have given all those brain cells names. And we have actually a functional identity for each of these brain cells Like we can say this brain cell, which has a three letter name, which is not actually that interesting, senses this chemical. So if we get rid of that brain cell, the worm can no longer sense the chemical and it can no longer form the memory. It can no longer learn. So we can do all of those experiments logically and, and in a process and we can ask what each brain cell is doing to contribute to the memory, but we can also use genetics to individually test the role of all of the important neurochemicals that we're interested in. How much really is there still to learn? Because Eccles in Australia and all sorts of other brain people have been mapping this stuff for a long time, and I think Eccles was way back in the 60s, so that's a Let's call it about 60 years of brain work going on. Yeah. Is there still an awful lot to learn? I think so. And I think we are actually in a really magical time for neuroscience research because we have now a lot of technological advances that allow us to look at the brain in incredibly detailed ways. And of course, we stand on the shoulders of giants, so we build on each other's work. But one very cool thing we can do now is something called optogenetics, which is basically activating cells with light. And this is super cool because you can basically ask what a particular brain cell does by just shining a light on it, activating it, and then seeing what the animal does. You can do this with a single brain cell. You can do this with a circuit. So the question of does this circuit encode a memory? If it does, can you imagine if we activate those cells and then the animal behaves like it remembers something? So that is a relatively recent advance, which I think has revolutionized the way that we do neuroscience. Good luck with your research. Will you keep me posted? I will. I'll tell you all about the worms. And then I'll tell you, Dr. Yi Lian Chu, another star at Flinders University in Adelaide.